Welcome to Gears Action Growth, shifting business culture one conversation at a time. My name is Dr. Josephine Palladmore, and my superpower is creating business cultures that transform organizations team by team. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Ian Butterworth, and we discuss our reactions to the new show on Apple TV called Severance, and how it raises questions for us about how we manage our personal and work lives. We absolutely love this show, and I loved this conversation. I'm really excited about this conversation today, Ian, because I am so excited about this show that you recommended to me and having a conversation about the content. Firstly, the show that we're going to talk about is Severance. And I went onto Apple TV. I didn't have a subscription. I just subscribed just to watch the show. And it is absolutely stellar. So maybe people listening haven't uh, watched the show. It's okay. We'll describe some of the things that um, that are in the show. But uh, we'll also talk about the amazing concepts that that then we can apply to work and our lives and what's happening today. So it is so current. So so thank you, Ian, for giving me that opportunity. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> so so we're going to talk about Severance, which is a new series on Apple TV, and it has a stellar cast. So it has um, Christopher Walken, Adam Scott, Patricia Arquette, and a host of other amazing people. It's directed by Ben Stiller, and there's a number of executive producers. There's like a team, but um, I think Patricia Arquette is one of the producers as well. And it is just five-star quality, isn't it, Ian? We just yeah. loved it. Everything and- about it is perfect. The plot, the casting, the script, the look, the lighting the set design, the music, the sound design. It is. The- and, you, and you know what? We we loved it because it is so well done and so thought-provoking, isn't mm-hmm. it? It just makes you think. So so for, for people that haven't watched the show, let me give them a little bit of a, a brief. So, so the, the main character, Mark, leads a team of office workers whose memories have been surgically divided between their work and their personal lives. When a mysterious colleague appears outside of work, it begins a journey to discover the truth about their job. So so the, the premise is that they have gone through this process of severance and uh, it's a new technology. It's a, um, and, and so, so there's a, a number of things you see in the show around that technology, but it's a new technology which allows people to really separate or cut off their work lives and their personal lives so that when they're at work, they have no memory of who they are in their personal lives. And when they're in their personal lives, they have no memory of who they are at work. So it's an absolute severance of memory. And um, and if I, and I actually went into Wikipedia to look up severance. And severance is the action of ending connection or relationship dividing by cutting or slicing and there's a little bit of a um almost a horror angle to the series isn't there it's it's yes. a, it's it because of this such a, a impactful and significant thing that these people have gone have, have have taken themselves through and made themselves quite vulnerable because of that, yes, that process absolutely hmm. And so, the, Ian, set, the set design reinforces that too. It has a 1960s washed out look, a little bit yes. like Man from Uncle or Get Smart. Um, the color palette 
is like that. So it, it yes. to me it conjures images of sort of Cold War. It, it sort of that mood that you were just describing. It's reinforced through everything. Exactly, and I think it's set in present to future tense. So you're not quite sure because mm-hmm. there is this there is this fifties sort of vibe going on. So it's almost like uh, you know perhaps. Um, Got art, arcing back to that, but it is set in a you know the clothing and everything is sort of set in a in a present tense. Yeah, so in current, absolutely. In current sort of. So, Ian, tell tell me what really was the standout for you? Why did you say to me, Josie, you have to watch this show? <laughs> Look, maybe it's because I watched Looney Tunes as a child, and my favourite Warner Brothers cartoon. One of them was the Sheep and the Wolf that clock on at the entrance to the forest. <laughs> And at the gate, they say, oh, hello, Ralph. Hello, Sam. And uh, they clock on and then go <laughs> into the park. And then they become prey and uh, uh, and the preyer, um, whatever that term the is. The predator? Predator. Thank you. <laughs> Speaking of severance, um, it's a Friday morning. Um, so I've always been fascinated by the idea that we become someone different when we go to work. Mm. It's always interested me. Mm. And the very active commuting. Um, the you transition. Know, yeah. And typically the way our cities have been designed, anyone that watched Mad Men would know, you know, Don Draper, the white executive, leaves his wife and children uh, and black maid at home. <laughs> and heads into New York City and becomes someone else or becomes more of who he is or yes. whatever. But he certainly yeah. severs his private life behind. Yes, yeah. Um, and it's always interested me. What does it take to be your whole self no matter where you are, including where you work? Exactly. And, you know, that's been my whole life passion. I, I, I did my... PhD in um, I completed it in 2005 and the topic for my PhD was this issue of uh, how do we how do we bring both sides of ourselves to work and I was looking at particular ge- um, gender identity in that masculinity and femininity so I've, I've got this so for me it's 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 fabulous because it's such a topic that I've, you know, I've done a lot of reading about. Um, there's a lot of um, applications for me, but let, let's go through it. We're, we're going to look at some of the things we love. And just for listeners that haven't seen the show yet, we're not going to give you any spoilers because there is an amazing plot twist at the end, but let's <laughs> not give that away. <laughs> but we will talk about some of that as well. So so, so firstly, Ian, you were um, commenting the other day about those hor- that horrible office rituals when they're at work. So there, oh there is God. a team of four, and there's always a team of four and a manager, and the the manager forces them to go through these terrible office rituals. So tell when, me a little yeah, bit about your impression of that. When they achieve a target, they have to do things. It's I'm I'm struggling not to give away what actually happens because I don't want to ruin it for people. But they're the sort of cringy things that you normally are forced to do at weddings or you know I think we can talk about that. So th- so let's talk about one in particular where the disco music comes uh-huh. on in the office. Yes. Um I mean, I have endured office Christmas parties where I'm forced to put on a blonde wig or tinsel hat or, um, you know, and basically endure this forced 
joviality. Yeah. When exactly. I really just want to stick a, a steak knife through my karaoke. eyes. Karaoke. Karaoke. <laughs> I know. I don't. And, you know, it's always hard, isn't it? Because there's and so this, is this social pressure to participate. Mm-hmm. And it's so cringy. It really is, isn't it? So Yeah. But in particular, I think in the show it was even more cringy because they were in their office space. So so they were actually in those grey walls pretending like they were in this other space where there was this party going on. Yeah. And, and this, they're in their grey, you know, suits as well. So it was I think it's, really it's telling. An, for me, those rituals are an interesting example of myth-making within an organisation. Those sorts of rituals are supposed to give employees a window into the soul of the organisation. Um, but I guess... I don't know. I, I associate those things as part of the cringy sort of Amway, um, you know, those sorts of pyramid organisations that create the mythology, and you have to be, you need to become part of the tribe. And those yes. are those are rituals that are meant to be yes. expectations that you belong and that you're participating and cohering with those informal requirements. Yeah. Um, and if you don't participate, you're immediately identified as the other um, or as someone who's not hasn't drunk the Kool-Aid sufficiently. Mm. Um, well, there yeah. is that. There is that. And, and when I work with teams, I actually talk to them about the rituals that they are they're, they're either, you know, developing if they're just starting or they've developed and maintained. And often, um, so rituals are important to to that because even when you think about our, our bonds, you know, the way in which totally. we bond together socially. But I think we need to, we need to really um, have an alignment between what's happening in those rituals and what we're doing in other parts of that organizational life and I think for severance in the in the series there was this stark uh, difference mm. between what they were doing in those rituals which is we're all friends and we care yeah. about you and we're giving you great food and we're getting yeah. you to dance in the office and then the other parts of what they were doing to them because they were treating them quite poorly yes. you know they were there was some again this is a horror in some other you know mild horror in this series and some of the things that were happening were absolutely um just out of the park you know, yeah. out of the park, treating them very poorly, treating them like they weren't even individuals. Yes. And, um, and so I think it's that. And, and I know organisations where that happens, where there'll be a Christmas party or there'll be a, you know, ritual, there'll be team rituals going on, but it's it doesn't come across as, it doesn't actually lead to increased engagement or bonding because it's so stark um, it's such a stark difference between that and then what's happening in the rest of the organisation. And um, mm, That's interesting because it's almost like those rituals are about forced conviviality and belonging, whereas some of the other rituals that take place are actually about dehumanising and othering and um, yes. gaslighting in a way. Exactly, exactly. And so there's right. a disconnect between the overall behaviour that occurs within the within the organisation and these these rituals which sort of give lip service to some fake notion of community. Mm-mm. Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. And that fake notion of community, I think, is the is the key word there. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Um, so so there was we, – we loved Patricia Arquette in this series 
So because of, I mean, it was a great role for, I love Patricia Arquette anyway, but it was such a great role for her, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm glad she's moved on from medium. Let me just say that. <laughs> <laughs> that was um, my late night. Oh, um, uh, yeah. Late, late Guilty night pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yes, uh, she her character is very very interesting. Um, again, I don't want to give too much away, but uh, she plays multiple roles and portrays multiple selves at, at different times. Mm. Um, and the it's very interesting to see the underlying covert aim behind it all. Uh, she comes across as very. Uh, threatening and um unnerving in a way i i cringed every time she came on this on the screen she was which, amazing wasn't it? And, which and, is a and, sign of a good actor and we can say she's she's the director of the facility in a way so she's the uh, perhaps the uh there are there are she reports to the board so you know she mm-hmm. feels like a ceo to me who reports mm-hmm. to the board um and she, you do get that cringe factor from her mm. but um so I loved the way in which she was portrayed, the style in which they that character was portrayed. She was always very um, blocked in her in in her clothing, you know, um, very masculine suits, you know, very straight hair, um, and it was very emotionless. So her character mm-hmm. was always very emotionless, and it, and she always spoke in this real kind of low monotone, which gave you a sense that. <laughs> There was this impending kind of, um, you know, impending doom coming bit, but she was always, you know, very regulated in her speaking. And um, and she obviously, all those status symbols were status symbols of power. She had the absolute power in that place. And yet when she was at home, because they, they, they portrayed her in her home, she actually was, she almost looked like, the sweet little old lady that lives next door. She portrayed mm. that character. And we were sort mm. of talking about whether that was, you know, um, whether the character was a fake persona or a real persona. And I, I, I think we dif- differ on that because I actually saw what she was portraying was this more um, emotional nurturing self when she was at home, whereas she was this stark bureaucrat you know director executive in the in the office no i saw her as utterly fake and i wouldn't trust her as far as i could throw her i i would not be right you might be right i would not borrow a cup of sugar from that person (laughs) (laughs) even when she makes her cookies no no i wouldn't eat the cookies either i wouldn't know what was in them and ian you commented um because you've seen women dress like that in your work experience. So tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about that. Uh, my time working in government, um, there are a few people that stand out. And I guess this is the problem. I feel bad talking about it because men can wear the most ghastly, mm. ill-fitting suits and oh. they get away with it. Yeah. Um, or they can be slobs and they get away with it. Whereas women sort of, I think if they want a certain level of power and to be seen as powerful in those contexts, one used to wear the most enormous chunky jewelry. Um, it was sort of like she was wearing sort of Stonehenge style stones around her neck. <laughs> I don't know how she could walk. Um, one one came to work. One one was a very senior government person who wore 
I remember seeing her in an incredibly thick coat. Mm. It was almost like an armadillo's uh, carapace. It was like a shell. Mm. Um, and I assumed it was a suit of armor. Well, that's how I read it. Um, and I remember there was another another senior person who whose office was, as I recall, adorned with giant photographs of predatory birds. <laughs> very much in line with Patricia Arquette's character. (laughs) And the irony was uh, this person, um, I think she had imposter syndrome and she she covered up for the fact she didn't really understand anything that she was presiding over by sitting. We used to say that she would sit on memos until they died, um, sort of drawing on the bird theme, because things got incredibly congested and decisions that were very timely and important were not being made because this person couldn't bring the, herself to actually make a decision. Mm. But the semiotics of her room were, uh, if you come in here and you act like a lamb, I will, you know, grab you by my talons and take you up to my nest Amazing. and feed you to my chicks. Yeah. Yeah, scary. I, you know, even when um, my experience of working in corporate organisations too was there was this sense that the dress code was – um, very masculine, firstly, as a woman, very masculine to be treated um, to uh, seriously, but also without colour. <laughs> so, uh. so, you know, the, the dark blues and the, the blacks and the greys. And when did we decide that that was the colour palette, right? So, so I would actually, because I love colour, I would actually wear a lot of colour in the office, but I was always um, one of the few managers who wore colour, my colleagues all wore pretty, um, you know, and sometimes sometimes women, my colleagues would wear scarves in, that were colourful, I think, and that was a way of kind of bringing colour in. It's almost like this, you know, is that an unconscious kind of, um, you know, offering to, Pushing to back ourselves? Or... Yeah, 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 exactly. So I, I just don't know, you know, when did we decide that colour meant you're not serious about yeah. what you're doing. I, I notice a lot of women in senior government roles, uh, I'm thinking to American public service, wear one very bright colour for their whole outfit. It would be bright red or bright blue, but there won't be any variation. It's just no one colour, just one giant colour. Yeah, Block. Um, but, I mean, you, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, because if they wear something flamboyant then they have the you know the shock jocks criticizing their clothing choices exactly exactly and and women are scrutinized around all of these things and that's our point isn't it that men Mm -hmm. are not scrutinized women are scrutinized around all these things and and there's no good reason for that to be happening yeah absolutely so so um so ian the other question we had was why would you choose severance and and the characters in the show go through some of that, you know, you see an arc back in in terms of their history and some of the ways in which they are perhaps coping with life. And a lot of, particularly the main character, chose to be severed. Um, 
due to the grief of losing his wife. And and then you see this chorus of friends around him who are questioning his choice. Mm. And they're like the Greek chorus in the, in dramas, in Greek dramas that are, you know, perhaps, you know, bringing in another voice or another voice of reason or another another um, perspective on, on, on the situation. And they, they're questioning it from a, mor- a moral and ethical perspective. Mm-hmm. But the actual main character was... Um, you know, his original, I guess, motivation was to at least not feel grief for half half the day. So, so what we what did you make of that? Uh, um, I once worked with someone who spent all their time traveling um, because it was clear that their home life was something that they wanted to escape. Um, and I think they made a psychological severance by creating geographical distance. Um, actually, I was been, while we've been talking, I've been thinking about my earlier Mad Men Don Draper statement, and, um, you know, he left his black maid at home who was doing all their housework and probably unsung and trapped, but there were a few people of colour that emerged in that Manhattan office uh, in the 60s in which it was mm. set. And they had to go through um, uh, a forced severance where they actually had to sever the reality of the discrimination that they faced mm. every single moment of their day and go into this office where they had to pretend that everything was fine and dandy. Um, and there were there were some queer um, characters in that too that were probably having to quote unquote live a lie because of the overriding social pressures of the time. Um, so I think for those people, severance is almost like an unconscious forced or a conscious forced mm. survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. Whereas for other people, people who are white, people who are male. Uh, the severance, it might be for any number of other reasons. Mm. Um, but part of it might be about wanting to fit in. Part of it might be about um, wanting to become that successful persona in their work life because mm. their private life is a mess. Um, I don't know. What do you think? I think part of it, I mean, it's all of that. And I think it's also the fact that... Um, we often uh, perhaps don't have the skills to deal with really big emotions. And so a way of um, avoiding that is by really avoiding the emotion. <laughs> so, you know, and severance is the absolute end of the continuum on that. On that. Um, I, I think that, you know, through our family lives, through our early socialisation, through our education, we often don't really perhaps see good role models around you know dealing with big emotions particularly or any you know some of us don't have any role models around us when we're young around uh, that are that um you know that of merit that that would be um informing us about how to deal with emotions so i think that there's a lack of it's a lack almost like a lack of skill and capability and therefore um what we do is want to avoid the that uncomfortableness around that or avoid the feeling of loss around that and we retreat. So, so I think that there is a lot 
I think that perhaps the organisational um, template that has really been built around that 1950s or 60s version of the male uh, bureaucrat or executive, because that's where a lot of our templates come from, uh, is one where the men of that era were very happy to leave emotions at home. Mm. Um, it's almost like the organisational culture, the promotion opportunities, the, the way that one is seen and acknowledged and rewarded at work requires that severance. Exactly. Um, it requires someone to be available at all hours. Mm. Um, it disadvantages women. And you and I were talking just the other day about we still design cities where childcare options are usually left in the suburbs. Yes. Um, it's very hard for people. Why can't we build offices with childcare facilities contained in the building? I mean, exactly. I know some people would prefer to have childcare close to where they live, and I, I get it, um, but to only have one option... That's it right. seems it seems to be based on a, a kind of severance that you leave your family at home. Um, you certainly wouldn't nip out at lunchtime and check in on the kids. Yes, um, yeah. And maybe I think COVID's blown that apart in some ways because, mm. I mean, there are times when working from home is a real blessing and obviously there are times where it's a curse, um, especially if there are other people in the house that you actually do need some quiet time away from. But... I don't know, maybe severance, the reverse of severance has occurred during COVID where we've all been thrown together in yes. environments that aren't ideal for working in. That's right. That's right. I think that that, that has, and, and what we've shown is that we can do that and still be productive. Absolutely. So that's, because I think that that was also the assumption that we had to be severed in order to be productive. And yes. so, um, you know, you don't take personal calls during the work hour. You don't, you don't run off to do a, an errand during the work day. You know, it's all of that. And what we've shown is that people, if you leave people to manage their day, manage their life in the way that best, you know, suits them, um, and, and you're, you know, kind of, you, you're sort of building that strong team and strong environment around them, they will actually do the right thing and they will they will be able to manage the the competing demands and so you're not expecting people to just leave them leave all of those responsibilities or uh, even even the mindsets at home you know we're bringing them all into the workplace so but i think you know we still have cities that are designed on that um, traditional template you know we have these high rises that are cubicles that yeah. are they're not multifunctional you know there's no childcare there's no there's no um, there's often um, rec recreational activities are are not where the work is being done they're often in separate precincts so i think i, I mean maybe there are cities that do this better but I, I certainly don't think melbourne is designed that way well i guess a 20th century um, phenomenon was the single zoning use of a particular piece of land and so the commercial activity occurs in one part of the city, mm. the recreation in another, um, the production of food in another, the education and childcare in another, blah, 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 blah. Um, the really vibrant places are where it all happens all Together. at once. And I remember my first um, trip to Manhattan, a um, long time ago now, 
And that's what struck me. There was this city and people were living in the city. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I remember um, I stayed with a very good friend and we walked to her office building. So, so, and during that walk, she dropped off her laundry. She went <laughs> to the, the cafe and had the coffee. Yeah. And, you know, if she had children at the time, she would have dropped them off nearby. Yeah. And then she's walking to her office building. At yeah. lunchtime, she's picking up her laundry. Like it's all happening in one place. And you walk by and there's a basketball court there and some other people and there's a little park here. And it's all in one place. And Manhattan, I think, is, you know, parts of Manhattan have um you know had that sense of um there are hidden costs though and it's happening in melbourne too the people that work in the 7-eleven and the starbucks can't afford to live nearby so they're schlepping in from from long island or new jersey or whatever and enduring long commutes um so i guess the challenge is for a really livable place um the the affordability and diversity of housing is often the deal breaker and and that's government policy it's got to be driven by government policy absolutely hey what do you think about organization cultures where there's not enough severance i'm while we're talking i'm thinking of workplaces that i've worked Ah. in in the health and community sector i was gonna say health (laughs) or the ngo sector it's like leave your private stuff at home i don't want to hear about it it's in it's impacting on your work and mine yes um you know let's have a bit of severance when you come up the elevator just leave Leave your dra- psychodrama at home, please. It's a really good point. It's a really good point. So there is this sense that when we're at work, there's a professionalism or some some other things come into play. And I think that, um, and I think that what we've got now is this trend towards personal leadership or authentic leadership. But that doesn't mean that you spray your unregulated emotions. Mm-hmm. all over the office space oh, all over or all over the team what you need there, there needs to be there absolutely needs to be some regulation and um and in some ways um the way that i manage that because I, I do meet teams like this that are so caught up in the personal drama of what's mm. happening that they lose sight of why they're together and yeah. so that's why with when i work with teams i bring them back to what are you all here to do yeah. You know, how are you going to work together to do that? The rest, and, and some of that is absolutely they have to get to know each other and trust each other and be able to communicate with each other. But also part of that is we need focus time to work. Uh, we need to, when we're, when we're solving problems, we need to focus on that. We need to have a solutions orientation rather than repeating problem statements all the time. Mm-hmm. So, because often people who talk about the drama are people who are repeating problem statements all the time. Interesting. So, so I think that there's, so there are definitely different team rituals that you can kind of put in place mm. to overcome some of those cultural, but you're absolutely right. There has to be this, um, this sense that we're all here to do something. That's mm. why we're all here together. I've worked in organizations devoted to empowerment and participation in governance by the people most affected by the issues. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about um, some of my early work in the community response to HIV AIDS where Mm. people were so damaged and hurt by what was going on at that moment, let alone a whole life spent um, Mm. being socially excluded, that when they had a taste of of power within that organisation, 
um, the governance structures and systems and uh, the management decisions, the, the, the staff supervision, we're not up to the task of helping people separate their unresolved, very deep personal yeah. and, you know, and, and I, I was feeling like they needed, thinking that there needed to be special organisational systems put in place to help people process that stuff. Exactly. But then actually ensure that it, that that a little bit of what you weren't talking about severance, you were talking about communion, weren't you? It's not about cutting that stuff out. It's yes. actually finding a way to harness it and turn it into something productive. In a productive, productive way, exactly, exactly. How do you do that? that? Tell, talk to me about that. So, so communion is is where we see ourselves as part of the ecosystem, and um, the 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 opposite to that, agency, or you know, in some ways, severance, is where we see ourselves as individual and the um, individual to the environment. So, if we're thinking about ourselves out from a very deep identity level as being part of the ecosystem or part of the environment then that means we, we make choices about things that in a different way so so what I guess what I'm talking about here to give to, as an example is if you were working with a team and you wanted to bring more of the community in for um, uh, for a level of engagement but you know that there's some past trauma there or there's some sometimes from an organizational perspective it can be some distrust for example, as well, that, that's, that's gone on between that organisation and that community. Or it could be, um, it could be even within an organisation where you have managers and employees and there's been some disruption. You have to deal with that. So if I, if I t attack it from a communion, communal perspective, the first thing I'm going to apply is nurturance before I go into empowerment and, and action. I think we go into, you know, to your example, there's, you can't bring people in on and um, expect them to be doing things when they actually just need to be heard. They need to be listened to. Um, you can't, for example, bring a team in that's been affected adversely by a restructure and focus them straight away on the future without recognising and respecting the past and allowing them to voice that and and have some kind of ritual where they let where they they are choosing to let that go and go forward. So so this is real. We need a real understanding of not only um, what we need in from, but what others need, and bringing that into the the plan around how we manage that, how we manage um, how we manage to go from perhaps a state of inaction to action or how we manage to bring people into the organization so that they're adding value. Um, but so I don't know if those rituals happened in your, in your, but, but that in your example, but that level of um, um, communal thought comes from in some ways, a deep understanding ourselves that we, um, we are part of something uh, that's that's bigger than us. So you know, a, a part of, and it can be. Sometimes you can get that by bringing people um, to a, a better understanding of why they're there. You know, in terms of the purpose. And sometimes it's just about enacting compassion and nurturance before you start to go into action. I'm wondering if there's something called organisational level severance. And it occurs to me that many people working in organisations have endured so many restructures yes, and yes. machinery of government changes and rebranding that 
there's almost a requirement that people are able to just disconnect that history, yeah. that corporate knowledge, and pretend like it never happened. Exactly. And then uh, sort of hooray hockey sticks off we go to this brave new future. And some of those rituals that are created around organisational myth-making and visioning and creating a team culture and team values. I mean, I got tired of going to those things because I just thought, here we go again. Exactly. It's it's hollow. It's absolutely hollow. And and there is, with change comes loss. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's, with loss comes grief. Yes. That's a big emotion. And in the organisational setting, you can deal with that. You can absolutely deal with that by recognising the past, by respecting the past, by playing, by, by giving homage to where we've come from. But then, and then when people are, when people hear that, it's only then that they're ready to move on and get excited about the future. And then you can do all those other things. But, but, but otherwise people get a, a bit cynical because they, they feel like they're under, undervalued or they feel like that past experience doesn't matter anymore. And, and their contribution and their passion and their sweat and their effort hasn't been recognised. And so often through restructure, we, um, we have to deal with that grief and loss. There has mm. to be somewhere where you go, you know, and there's lots of ways to do that. There's some really beautiful rituals you can do. I did this really great ritual once where I got the team to bring in photos from the past, you know, because the team had been together in a different form. Uh, and I got them, you know, you take photos at work. And we mm. brought them in and we put them on the wall. These are our memories. You know, we're not going to lose these memories mm. by, by going into something new. These are our memories. We're going to, you know, we're going to bring them in. We're going to bring them into the environment and, 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 and this will strengthen us to go forward. So it's, it's things like that, very easy things that you can do to, um, if we're thinking about um, people. If we're thinking about what people need and if we're thinking about ourselves as part of something greater, and, and often I think in organisations, particularly in bureaucratic organisations, there are demands that come into play. And look, managers do the best they can. We often, you know, we often give them a really hard stick because they, they are actually doing the best they can. They often have to make really tough decisions and, um, and you know, I'm, I, they are not the the evil presence um, in the room, apart from you know those that are portrayed in Severance. But 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 what we need in those management decision making forums is this understanding about the whole ecosystem, the system. You know how is this decision going to affect the system? What do we need to do to then make sure that we go back to a state of equilibrium? Because particularly restructures and those kind of changes and disruptions, it, it's um. It, it, it always um, has a set of emotions where you're, there's anxiety beforehand and fear, then the change happens, and then there's this loss and grief that nobody deals with, and then we go into doing, and we go into, hmm. you know, kind of pressure on performance. And people feel squeezed in that, in that um, context. So this notion of severance, how do you think that intersects with the preponderance that I note for some organisations to refer to themselves as families, we we have a, I kind of it kind of sticks in my craw because, I mean, families are where severance can occur on so many levels. Yeah. Um, abuse that occurs within families requires people literally to psychologically sever 
the trauma from their yes. daily selves. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for me, the people that have talked the most about creating family at work are the ones that are least able to actually mm. create that true conviviality. God knows what their families are like, yeah. but yeah. I certainly didn't enjoy being a conscripted member of their family no. at work. No, and so families can be very hierarchical too because mm. you have children and adults. Yes. So families is not a good metaphor for no. organisations. And actually, I interestingly, I was doing a workshop just the other day, Ian, where one of the – I was asking the team, what metaphor um, would, you, would you use to describe working together? And one of the team members um, – raised uh, an idea that we could be called a family and the other team members actually said no I don't think so <laughs> and um so it, it was one of the managers said we could be called a family and they Ooh. so so the the important thing is is who is coining that um yeah that you know who is coining that metaphor in that organizational setting so Metaphors need to be agreed. They need to be agreed by everyone. Otherwise, the metaphor is in service of a particular person in the organisation or a particular group. So metaphors in like, so so you know they came up with other um, other metaphors which were much more in keeping with, for example, pieces of a puzzle or um, skilled soccer team. So they were metaphors that they ended up with rather than a family. So is it possible for us when we go into uh, a workplace that requires travelling into the city and going up an elevator to our designated floor and our cube, is it possible to do that in a way that doesn't require severance from the time we get in on the ground floor to the time we get out on level 15? Like, what's required? I, look, I think, I think we can. I, I think that um, it, it takes a lot to... A lot of thinking from a self ourselves, you know, from a self identity perspective, but also we've we've we're really in, um, impacted and influenced by the environment that we enter. So so my you know my dream for the perfect workplace, and I and I sort of created it at, 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 in my co working space, was a place where you walk in and the environment reminds you that you don't need to sever yourself. Uh huh. So, so that to me was um, natural surfaces, uh, beautiful airy spaces, windows that open, um, views of nature, and you know, uh -huh. and lots of plants and the and in in the and and an some open spaces that are you know conducive to collaboration, and some some other clo more closed spaces that are more conducive to focused quiet. But, def but those spaces to me remind us that we do not have to sever ourselves. So I think it's, I really do think that there's a lot to do in the built environment around that and also oh, yes. in, in the way we design, you know, office spaces. And I really wish we had a different word. I think office is a word that makes me think of severing myself. Uh -huh. like going to the office. I think workplace might be a better uh, you know, so we've got home and we've got workplace. That might be a better term, but this this term office to me makes me think of the dark settings that that are in the series. Yeah, interesting. Hmm. So lots to think about, Ian. We might close it off there. I've really enjoyed talking about severance. Was there anything else you wanted to add before we we do that? What's your final word on that? Should should you recommend it, or you know, what what's your final word on the series? Take the stairs. 
stairs. Exactly. Exactly. I love Take it. the stairs. <laughs> and, and you know we are we are not affiliated with Apple TV or anything like that. Um, but I will put a link on to some of the show um, uh, details on i uh, on another site. Um, and um, yeah, I just think it was just such a beautiful uh, series. And I think they are going into season two. I, I can't wait. Maybe we'll have to watch it together. We'll do a watch party, Ian. I would love to watch it with you. It would be fabulous. So, yeah, amazing. It takes right. a lot. I mean, I, I love acknowledging and celebrating perfection. I, I can be snarky and I do kvetch uh, when I don't no. achieve it. Uh, but when it's there and it's superb, I have to celebrate it. So I encourage everyone to yeah. watch this. Um, it's, it's superb. And I, I can't remember a show that's left me gagging for season two. Because it's just, yeah. oh, my God, it's, I can't wait. It's beautiful, isn't it? Well, all right, we'll hold out for season two. Maybe we'll do another, we'll have another discussion after we've finished season two. <laughs> <laughs> all, right. Have a day. all right, thank you so much.